What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 142 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders, find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and the places that God has put us. Well, today in episode 142, we get to sit down with a leader who has led in every space in every place that he has been put. And I promise you, today, you are in for a treat. But I do want to hit pause right here. And I know I have so many friends. You listen to every episode. If you will take time and do me a favor today and go to iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen from and leave a rating and review that would help so much folks to find their way to our podcast and also share it, share it on your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or your uh, Instagram feed. And it does help other people find their way to us. Well, today we get to sit down with a gentleman I have heard so much about through the years. His name is Jimmy Miato. He is president and CEO of Compassion International. He was the former president of the WCA, the Willow Creek Association. He was in the Olympics in the 1988 Seoul Olympics and competed for his country of birth, El Salvador. And I tell you what, this guy has lived five lifetimes in his life and he shares his heart today about why leadership means so much to him and about his journey. What an absolute delight he was. So I don't know where you're listening from today, but this guy is one of the best. He's one of the best out there. Compassion is literally changing our world and is one of the most influential organizations in the world. And you're going to hear from the heart of the gentleman who leads it. So I want you to do me a favor. I want you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Jimmy Miato. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Hey, Mike, it's just great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation and uh, uh, grateful to be talking about some real important subject matters. So thanks for your ministry to folks. You know, I feel like I know you because I've known of you so long. But the Jimmy that I may know (laughs) began a long time before you appeared on the world scene as a decathlete or a a leader (laughs) of leaders. Your parents played a massive role in shaping who you are. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Absolutely. In fact, my my mom, uh, she grew up in poverty, the daughter of migrant farmers on the U.S.-Mexico border, and they went wherever the work was. Uh, as, 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 you know, my mom, she would tell me how she was taught as a little girl how to keep a dirt floor clean and level. Mm-hmm. Interesting the way she would put that. She had one toy her entire um, growing up years as a child and adolescence. And 
Um, and, but I'll tell you, here's this, this girl growing up in poverty that way. And she had one of the most adventuresome spirits that is inspiring to me to this day. Um, she would go into town when they would go and buy supplies and go back out to the farm. And she loved looking at the labels of where things were made. And for some reason, God put this desire in her heart to want to see the world. And so she'd say, you know, made in Germany or made in Japan or made in Brazil and say, oh, someday I'd love to go there. And wouldn't you know, she runs into another adventuresome young man in that same town who also wanted to see the world. And so my parents got married uh, back in 1957. They've been married some 64 years now, and, and they have traveled and they have moved now a total of 41 times in their 64 years of marriage. Unbelievable. I was in seven different countries before I celebrated my first birthday. I grew up um, in 26 different homes, houses, apartments, and uh, we just moved a lot. My dad was an engineer, and we just went where the work was. And uh, my dad also had that adventuresome spirit, and that's one of the things I got from both of them. Uh, beyond just loving the Lord, they made it so easy for me to meet Jesus because Jesus was a normal part of our family. Mm, mm. And, and, and really, my family was my first church. My family was my first small group because we moved a lot. We would be a lot of times in between countries, in between churches. And so I grew up in family church. We just did family church and, and, and learned Hymns like How Great Thou Art is one of the first ones I met. My mom got in touch with child evangelism, so she used the child evangelism materials uh, to organize our, our family services, if you will, in hotel rooms or apartments or whatever. And so coming to Christ at an early age uh, was really because of, because of their keeping Jesus in the middle of our lives, and that was the biggest thing my parents got. But on top of that... It's this adventuresome spirit and this mm. courageous spirit that both of them had. Uh, my dad used to say he was so hungry to make an impact. His company would send him the craziest projects. Like who's going to go to the jungle of El Salvador and build a dam and a tunnel and a powerhouse? He raises his hand at 33. He'd never done that before. And so he raises his hand and he says, I'll, I'll take my family, two kids, three years old and another one about one and goes into the jungle there in El Salvador and builds that project. And, and on his birthday, with no doctor, no sport that, I was born uh, in El Salvador 58 years ago. Unbelievable. Um, and I just love their, their courage, their adventuresome spirit, their work ethic, um, and, and really their generosity. Because of my mom growing up in poverty, she always had us involved in the life of the poor wherever we were. And we got to, we were always involved in local churches. And sometimes they'd pick the local church because it was in the worst part of town yep. because that's where the need was. And we would we would go there and, and, and serving the poor in her mind wasn't anything like noble or it was just normal. It was just a thing that, of course, you do that. Uh, Jesus asked us to do that. And so they did. And they were incredibly generous. I loved actually looking through my mom's checkbook and I'd see that tithe happen. All the, that tithe was just regular, regular, regular. Then they always sent money to her parents, my dad's parents to support them. And then there was giving beyond that. Mm. And I just love seeing who my parents shared, uh, shared their resources with. So that, that was 
uh, my upbringing in so many different cultures, different countries, languages, and English is actually my second language. Spanish was my first, and that was my mom and dad's primary language. So, um, my goodness, they they really provided the foundation uh, for me to walk with Jesus. I love that. You know, you ended up a child growing up in that family ends up going to one of the world's most prestigious business schools at Harvard. Mm -hmm. What's a leadership lesson you learned from your mom and your dad that you couldn't have learned out of a book at Harvard? What would you say Uh, something that you took from them and they didn't even mean to teach it to you, but yet even today as a, as a grown man in the middle of his work career, you're still using that leadership lesson. You know what? I, I have to say courage. Um, uh, didn't really learn that at Harvard. That's for sure. Um, uh, but I, I learned from them um, what it means to make decisions that have things at risk. Uh, you're really risking something to make a decision to do a certain thing or not do a certain thing. Um, and my dad growing up, you know, watching him lead in Latin America where things like bribes and, 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 you know, rigged uh, contract selection processes and things like that were normal. And my dad never participated in that so much so that his company once kind of, they were doing gag Christmas presents at the end of the year. And his gag Christmas present was a bar of soap (laughs) because he just wouldn't go there. He stayed clean (laughs) Uh, and just wouldn't go there. Mm. And and his willingness to accept an assignment, even before he knew what fully that assignment would entail. Uh, but he felt compelled to want to make a difference. And I think that that um, that sense of wanting to make an impact, they imparted to me. I didn't get that at the business school. That's for mm. sure. Mm. That's so good. You know, in that courage, I'm sure, played a part in your athletic career. You went on and represented your country as a decathlete in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. What was it about that experience? Something you had always dreamed of. I've heard you say, what was it about the experience you didn't expect going to the Olympics to represent? Well, it was, so the the dream for the Olympics started in 72 at Munich. I was a a little in, in the summer between my third and fourth grade year. And that summer, they had the Olympics of Munich on, and I was mesmerized by the whole Olympic movement. And that, of course, is when the hostages were taken, the 11 Israeli players and coaches were killed. And, and, but just the notion of the world coming together in peaceful competition, man, I was sold. I played other sports, but it was always track and field for me was the best. I started organizing uh, games at recess, long jump competition, races. Uh, we didn't have... Athletic, organized athletics in Nicaragua. And remember, we started high jumping at a tree limb was our high jump bar. No mats, you know, you're yep. just jumping over the tree limb and, you know, landing on the grass on the other end. And But by the time I was in sixth grade, I was able to, to jump over my head, uh, over my height. And, and so the high jump just became something that made sense to me. And eventually, you know, it, it was just a wonderful invitation from El Salvador to uh, to try to go and try to qualify to go. Uh, they're in the middle of a civil war. 
They only had six spots for all the sports. They only had six spots. That's all the money they could afford to send to the Olympics. And, uh, and so a committee decided between the boxer and the runner and the swimmer and the whatever. Wow. And I happened to be the only male selected for track and field to go represent El Salvador in the decathlon, uh, to Seoul. And, um, you know, I, I think for me, the most, this is going to sound strange, but I went to the Olympics for an athletic experience of a lifetime. In many ways, it was. Uh, it, it was only the um, uh, uh, fourth decathlon that I had competed in and was healthy beginning to end. I had some injury issues. So I uh, was able to go up against, uh, uh, you know, the best in the world. It was only my fourth decathlon. And, and uh, you know, the moment for me was just going head to head with the world uh, record holder in the decathlon, Daly Thompson. Uh, in the high jump, it was just down to him and me. Uh, and again, high jump was one of my favorite events and, and, um, uh, it got down, it got up, you know, two, three inches below seven feet. And, and, uh, you know, he's jumping at it. I'm jumping at it. And I'm like, Oh, this guy owns a world record. He's won the last two Olympics in the decathlon, but, you know, and I never really pray for winning. I think God's scoreboard is different than the human scoreboard. But I must say in that moment, I said, Lord, if I just have this one, this one moment, this one moment would be great. And so, you know, I was able to win my group in the high jump and, and you know, um, you know, be able to surpass the world record holder in three of the 10 events. And that was just a gift to me. But the biggest thing I got out of the Olympics was not actually the athletic experience. It was a calling to serve as church, calling that. to serve the church. And here's why. When I went to South Korea, the pastor of the world's largest church back then, pa Pastor Paul Yonggi Cho, had a prayer meeting at the Olympic Village, invited anybody to come. There was about 100 that went. I was one of them. So I went to this prayer ministry, listened to Madeline Manning Mims give her testimony, and, and, and then this pastor just prayed over us. And uh, that was really special. And then he said, hey, I want to invite you to my church on the weekend. So I went to the church on the weekend. And then I went to a seminar that they hosted there that told the story of what God did in South Korea from 1904 through the Korean War all the way to 1998 and how God just moved mm -hmm. in that people. And they were a praying people. And there was just this revival uh, that occurred after the Korean War in South Korea went from a handful percentage of Jesus followers to some 27% within less than two generations. And it, you know, many of the world's largest churches are there. And, and it was just inspiring to almost as he was talking, it was as if he was kind of relaying acts too, but in our time, and you can wow. see it right there in real life. And I thought, Oh, and that's when I just felt this prompting on the inside Oh, to be a part of a movement like that. Father, I want to serve your church. I want to serve its leaders. And if there's anything I can do to help see the kingdom of Jesus movement happen in, in cities and states and countries and regions, I want to be a part of that. And that's when I really got my call to serve the church. And, and that's been, you know, consistent ever since then. But that's where it started. Um, and then eventually... The call would be to come back to the country that gave me the gift of the Olympics in the first place. Um, and to do that calling in places like El Salvador, which are pretty needy countries. That is so good. And, you know, it's so funny how we go with one thought 
and God has a whole nother reason for us yeah. being there. And right. you, you know, it's interesting. So prior to that prayer meeting, if that prayer meeting never happens, what looks different about your life now? Where where do you think you would be and what do you think you would be doing? My goodness, I, I, I think I'd be in uh, corporate America. I think I would be, I would have gone, I, I think I had a sense of wanting, my father had been encouraging me to get a business degree. And uh, I, I must admit, after the Olympics, I wanted to do church work. And he said, well, you ought to get your business degree anyway. <laughs> And uh, I was a volunteer said. youth pastor in my church, and I wanted to leave my engineering job and be that youth pastor. And and the vision, uh, we actually took a conference, uh, went to a conference at Willow Creek and caught a vision for being an outreach-oriented church mm-hmm. back in 1989, a few months after the Olympics. And our church tried to change and become an outreach-oriented church. And um, just the powers to be didn't let that happen. And the vision died at that church. And no kidding, really, almost to humor my dad, I applied to one school. And I thought, well, why not Harvard? You know, I'm not going to get accepted anyway. I'll, I'll apply to one school, almost to humor him. And uh, when the vision in that church died and that role no longer was going to be possible, the very next week I got my acceptance letter to Harvard. And as it, it was as if the Lord was, yeah, that door closed, but I'm opening up a door here for you that I want you to walk through. So I did. I went to Harvard. And oddly enough, while at Harvard, Um, there was a professor, Len Schlesinger, who was a professor in service management. Uh, We had a a homework assignment uh, to read an article that Peter Drucker wrote entitled, What Companies Could Learn from Nonprofits. Mm. And he highlighted the Red Scouts, uh, I'm sorry, he highlighted the Red Cross, the Girl Scouts, and Willow Creek Community Church. And this professor, he's a Jewish guy, he, he couldn't understand why in the world would Peter Drucker who is just this management guru, father of modern management, would think that a company can learn from any church. And then he found out I had been to that church, summons me to his office, and he says, tell me why Peter Drucker thinks a company could learn from this church. Um, So I give him my best spiel, and he goes, great, what do we do with this? And, you know, Harvard is 800 cases of different real-life situations, and I thought, well, you have all the cases to learn the same principles, why don't you do one on a church? That's a very different setting to learn the same principles. Um, what do you think about that? And he goes, that's a great idea. We'll never get it passed. <laughs> the religion school's on the other side of the river. Yep. And then he said, but here's what we'll do. I'll create a class and you and me are going to study the church sector, the church industry, if you will. And we'll study Willow Creek and we'll write a case study and a teacher's note to go with it. And once it's done, then I think I could get it approved. I don't think I can get it approved on the front end, but I think I could get it approved once we create it because I really think there's something here. And then it became a part of the required curriculum there at the Harvard Business School and many other business schools around the country. And that's how I met uh, the leaders at Willow Creek, such that when I graduated in 91, they started the association, which is really a movement to serve churches that were wanting to become these outreach-oriented, disciple-making churches. Um, it was a ministry to serve those churches, to see every church thrive. Then that's when practically I joined and, 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 and really my vocational expression became very aligned with the calling I'd received back in 88 at the Olympics. That's so good. And, and there's so many little 
threads when you look back. We talk about a lot on the podcast. We we look out the front windshield and we see what we see, but we look in the rearview mirror. Yeah, you you see you see it all unfold. I heard Chuck yeah. Swindoll say that years ago. You you know you look back to the Olympics. Your dad fought in the Korean War. My dad was in the Korean War. I heard oh, I heard you talk. Wow. About, he sure was on the on a uh, Yorktown. Um, my daughter married a young man from South Korea. And you you go back and you think about all the little things God knows that we don't. And you're a big fan of Henry Blackaby, like I am, and experiencing God. And he always says, and Henry says in the book, God is always working. Why is it so important that a leader realizes God is always at work, even when you don't notice him? Why is it so important for a leader to get that? Oh my goodness. To me, it's a ball game. It was the early eighties when I was in a little church, 150 people, not, and Henry Blackaby came and did a seminar there. I was like, are you kidding me? And, and that's when I heard that God is always at work around you. It's not our job to set our plans and ask God to bless them. In fact, the better prayer is to say, Lord, give me eyes to see where you're working around right. me and the courage to join you in that work. Mm. And of course you'll bless it because you're already there. So that not only became my life kind of perspective, that became my leadership perspective of God. I'm not interested and I wouldn't give two pennies what I think about compassion. I'd give a lot to understand what you want for compassion. And I want to align myself and become a student of what you want to do here at Compassion or any other leadership environment. Understand what do you want? Give me eyes to see that. And then uh, the courage to step in there and follow you and join you in your work instead of articulating my human-made plans. And and I got to tell you, I think that's so important because if we're following and doing what God wants us to do, we will not only do what he wants us to do, but we will do it in his way, Mm, in his way. And if we do our plan, we'll end up doing it our way, hurting ourselves and others often around it. Um, And, you know, I I think that uh, for me, even at Compassion, when you have a compelling cause, it's easy to start cutting corners on your soul in the name of the cause. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know, there's only one motivation you can trust, and that's love. Mm. Any that, anything that's beyond that, you really can't trust it. You hurt yourself. You hurt those around you. And compelling causes often tempt us to, in fact, start doing things our way uh, because it's so compelling. I'll start sacrificing and start doing things that God is not asking me to do. And eventually that becomes very burdensome and heavy. And yet the Bible says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So who's making it heavy? Because it wasn't God. I think it was me or me letting others make it heavy on me. So I find that if I'm joining God in his work, I'll join it in his way, in ways that in fact grow God's work in me as I do his work instead of doing his work in ways that destroys God's work in me. That's fantastic. You know, you, you talk about this passion, uh, not letting that cause get bigger than the one that the cause is for. How do you protect, you lead one of the largest nonprofits in the world, compassion. (laughs) And we want to get into it here in a second. I mean, it literally, its fingerprints are all over the world, helping the least of these. How do you protect 
your heart. I mean, you as a leader, and I think every leader knows there are privileges that come with leadership. There's there's tough things too, but there are privileges that come. How do you protect your heart in that? And what's some lessons you've learned during your years in leadership? Well, and it actually, this started right um, early on in marriage before I was in any leadership position, but the lessons I've learned have served, served me well then. And that was that the Olympics is a compelling cause. Harvard Business School is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Why would you say no to that? But early on in my marriage, our marriage was about me and my visions and my compelling things that I wanted to do. And I really didn't cleave to my wife. Mm. She cleaved to me and she helped me accomplish my visions, but at the expense of who she was as a person. And so four years of dating, four years of marriage after the Olympics in Harvard, uh, and it was actually at Harvard, she was really left a confused and disoriented woman, not knowing who she was outside of helping me. Mm. And, um, and at that point she went through a real crisis and our marriage went through a real crisis. And we together went and threw our marital operating system in the garbage can. And I had to become very, it's like God gave me a window into my selfishness and my depravity and its impact on the person I said, I love the most in my, in, in the world, my wife. And so we threw our marital operating system, which was really built around helping me do what I wanted to do threw that away and built the marriage from scratch where two wonderful, independent, gifted by God people could live and be who they were and still cleave to each other in marriage. Uh, and it became a very mutual oriented marriage instead of a one-sided marriage. But, but that is what really broke me and helped me understand that even if I'm doing compelling causes, those can be very dangerous if I'm doing them my way. And I was doing them my way. Um, and it's not only destructive for you, but those around you. And one of the most tragic things that I see in ministry, in church life, ministry life, is when, in fact, leaders and people are doing God's work in ways that destroys God's work in them. And I think what more God must, God's heart breaks every time he sees that because saying, he's saying, I'm not asking you to do that. You know, well, ask me what I'm wanting you to do. Um, and you, you, you're just running off on your own doing what you say is in my name, but you're not doing it in my way and you're destroying your own soul and you're destroying those around you. And so you know, uh, having learned that lesson, uh, I, I have, you know, having stepped into leadership, there are a lot of things that come with this leadership position that are very tempting to be destructive to me. And I have found that leadership and ministry over the long haul um, can lead to having one of four different kinds of hearts. And I've seen every one of them over time. Uh, as the disappointments mount or the hurts mount or even victories as they mount, um, you'll either over time as a leader have a hard heart where you're unfeeling and you've gotten hurt and you don't want to get hurt again. So you put up the walls, you, you get a heart of stone or you get a cynical heart where you question everybody's motive and nobody sacrifices like you do and nobody understands the load that you have as a leader. And so there's a cynicism that grows uh, or an apathetic heart where you're just like, well, you know, there, it, I can't make a difference here. And, and why even try? And, 
and you get you know real pity party in in that sense and and i've lived all three of those hearts at different points uh or the fourth kind of heart and that's a soft heart mm. that's the heart i want to have over the long haul i want to keep a soft heart and have those around me say that their hearts are are soft as well from having been associated with me and my leadership over time. And uh, I'd, I'd hate for me to be causing them to have a hard, cynical or apathetic heart. Um, so I, I want uh, because they are the fertile that I work in yeah. and I, they are the soil uh, that I work in and I am I am soil to them. We affect each other my teammates, my colleagues. And so the kind of person I'm becoming is the most important contribution I'm making to them in this cause. And, and anytime I'm doing God's work in ways that are not a natural fruit of who I'm becoming in Christ, red flags ought to be popping up all over the place. I only want to do God's work as a natural fruit of the person I'm becoming in Christ and nothing else because nothing else can be trusted. You do it any other way, you'll hurt yourself and you'll hurt people around you. And there are names and faces of people I have in my mind of having seen God's work done in ways that hurt God's work in them um, that, um, you know, some might not even recover. Um, and I just don't want to have anything to do with that at all. So it doesn't matter how big the responsibility is or the position or the goals or the compellingness of the cause. The thing that God actually gets out of me is in fact, the person I'm becoming and what I do for him can only flow as a fruit of that and nothing else. And I want the same for my colleagues here as well. You know, hard heart cynical heart, apathetic heart. Um, the hardest one of those to keep is the soft heart. All yeah. the others seem to flow out pretty naturally. <laughs> what is a check engine light that comes on for you when your heart, that entitlement settled in or the bitterness has settled in? You've been, every leader knows what it's like to be hurt. Every leader knows what it's like to be questioned. Every leader knows what it's like to have losses. Everybody does. How do you how do you catch these before they they set hard on you what what's a check engine light that comes on for jimmy that you go man my heart my heart needs a checkup what would you say well i would say it's that first thought that's a cynical thought a heart a a, a stone heart oriented thought or an apathetic thought and i have them all they 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 come as different things occur you get that bad email you have that bad conversation that disappointment or that post that's anonymous you know you get those anonymous gifts that come your way uh and you don't know what to do with and you're walking down the hall well was it them was it them who did that and and so the temptation to grow any of those three hearts is always there and i have found that my athletic training was actually very helpful for Mm. my soul training and that was for me to get good at a particular event, I have to pre-decide on what training I'm going to engage so that when I'm in competition, I can actually meet the demand of the, and the pressure that's going to be there when game on, when it's game on. So um, I have these things called like pre-decided micro-spiritual disciplines. <laughs> that's kind that's of good. a, they're pre-decided and they're these little tiny micro spiritual disciplines, if you will. And I, and I got to go back and really start with a revolutionary 
thought that occurred like, oh my goodness, uh, uh, like Dallas Willard, John Orberg just opened up the door to spiritual disciplines in my life in ways I hadn't known before. Uh, and it made so so much sense to me that our growth in Christ and growing my soul is not just about me trying hard. It's about me training well so that when it come, when game on, when it's like I'm in a pressure cooker situation, I'll have had the training to be able to withstand behaving or responding appropriately when the pressure is on. When I want to respond with a cynical a heart or a uh, apathetic heart, um, so these micro spiritual disciplines uh, really flow out of my my working definition of a spiritual discipline. Again, you know, very influenced by uh, Willard and others, or and that is that it's any activity. And see, I used to think, oh, spiritual disciplines: read my Bible, go to church, pray, and fast, and those are great ones. But it expanded my horizon when I understood that it's any activity that I ascribe spiritual purpose to that does one of two things. One, stops the natural flow of sin in my life. Or two, grows the supernatural flow of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. So in short speak, it's like stop the bad stuff, grow the good stuff. And so I started to think through what are the things that are not good in my heart? And, um, you know, things that my position brings me. For example, entitlement. My role entitles me to a lot of things. And when I start to uh, accept and, and, and take on those entitlements because I think I'm worthy of them or I deserve them or whatever, that doesn't do good things in my heart over time. And so I find that I have to strategically pre-decide a micro-spiritual discipline for me is to abstain as much as I can from the entitlements that come my way. Um, uh, now there's some help that I get from people to help me do this job and that's great but I don't need a parking spot close to the entrance I can walk just like everybody else um, and, and when I start accepting a lot of these entitlements I begin to believe that I'm that, that I right. deserve them that's exactly right and that, that I'm in a different position than everybody else and, and that, that's never good for my heart and, and I, I actually take volunteer roles uh, uh I like fixing things and working things. And my wife, uh, my wife, Leanne, she likes assigning me projects. And she was, <laughs> she was in this one place uh, and they needed to have their bathroom changed. And so I'm cleaning out old toilets and I'm in grubby clothes. And, and the people that were around there uh, is going to sound a little funny, but they're almost treating me like the Hispanic help. <laughs> and I was like, bring it on. That's good for my soul. That's good for me to be in a volunteer position where I have no entitlements That's right. and no one thinks I'm special because I'm this position or whatever. No, just, you know, treat me like a normal human being. And so it, you know, that for me to abstain and, and when I have uh, sins of engagement and too much of this, where I start believing too much that I'm special, I abstain from entitlements to remind me, that's not who I am. And, 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 you know, that, that's not, um, what defines what I'm deserving of. 
And so abstaining from those entitlements is a, in my position particularly is a good one for me. Or, or an, another one is for a number of reasons, because of the way I grew up always being the new person on the block, the new kid in town, uh, wanting to people please so that I would be liked happened and and people pleasing is death to leadership that's right uh you can't lead by vote on everything and and so i i was too wrapped up in wanting to please people with every decision that i made as a leader you just can't do that and and wanting people to think better of me than i really am and so i started abstaining from uh, image management abstaining from reputation enhancement um, and if, if I was shed in bad light, I'd let it go. And, and, uh, and it's probably closer to the truth than I would feel comfortable with. And I love the sting of letting it go that that would provide in me. Cause I'd go, Oh, that I'd feel the sting. And I think, Oh, they don't think as highly of me as I'd like. And then I'd go, ah, oh, there's a victory right there. I'm not a slave to what other people think of me. And that was an, that was training every one of these spiritual disciplines that are predecided, and they got to be predecided, because if I have to decide in the moment, I often make the wrong choice. That's right. But if I predecide, for example, how am I going to respond when I get a bad email? Is my assistant going to pay the price after that bad email, and I'm going to take it out on her, and she has nothing to do with it, or him, you know, or a colleague? No, I got to predecide these things so that when I'm in the heat of the battle. I go, oh, no, I've been, I know this was coming. I knew this was coming. I've already made that decision. This is how I'm going to respond. I'm not going to respond right away. I'm going to put that in draft and sit on it for two days and then send it. Um, so it, it, you know, send the email. So um, all those little moments, minute by minute, day by day, are training that allow you to be able to say yes to the right things and no to the right things. Um and, uh, you know, another one that's really been big on that is really studying how the will works. And the will is needed for good decision making as a leader. When your will is tired, you make bad decisions. You default to the easiest decision. So you got to be really careful about when you set yourself up to make important decisions. How's your will? And, you know, it's interesting in, in, in the legal system, if your case comes up either in the morning or in the afternoon, always pick the morning because in the afternoon, uh, the verdicts are, are they're harsher yep. <laughs> and the penalties are harsher than in the morning. Uh, decisions aren't as thoughtful in the afternoon. Why? Because the will has gotten tired. The will is like a muscle. And when the muscle gets overused or tired, it doesn't work the way it should. Same with our will. When um, our will is tired or depleted, don't put yourself in a bad, in, in, a, in, in a tempting situation or make big decisions right. when your will is tired. I heard, a, I heard a guy say it like this. When you're hungry, halt. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And it's so true because those are the times <laughs> we feel this pressure to make this huge decision and our will and our soul just are not, they're not in a good place for it. They're not in no. a good place for it at all. So here's your life. You, you, you grow up literally all over the world. You become a decathlete. You go to Harvard business school, you go to the Willow Creek association. 
but I think you'll look back at it all in the rearview mirror and say, it all prepared me for what I do now. Tell everybody a little bit. I think everybody has heard of compassion, but tell everybody, Jimmy, the burden of compassion and why it wakes you up every morning. And you're talking about not letting the cause get too big. This is a tough one because the cause is so, it's so good. And we've, gosh, we've taken, I think three or four kids. We've grown up through compassion, my wife and I. Tell everybody what it is about compassion that was so compelling for you and why you believe it's making a difference now in this in the society that we're in. Well, let me start with the need because the 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 vision for what you want to do always comes from the holy discontent that is unacceptable that you're living in or that God has exposed you to to say I'm letting you see the unacceptableness mm-hmm. of this as a way to invite you to make a difference in that area. And I saw if you just take the countries where compassion is active and some expansion countries we have on the horizon, there are 170 million children and young people that would qualify for Compassion's program. That is living on less than $3.20 a day that you would qualify for Compassion's program. Now, right now, I thank God for every one of the 2.2 million children that we serve but that's a little over 1% of the need. Mm. That's a little over 1% of the need. And here we have had independent research from the University of San Francisco look at longitudinally whether or not compassions, Christ-centered, church-driven, and child-focused around discipleship, holistic discipleship, that is Anything preventing that child from realizing their God-given potential is worthy of funding to remove that obstacle or provide that opportunity. So discipleship is a strategy through his church in his name. That's Compassion's ministry. It's local church-driven. So um, right now, that independent research has said that it's working, that the, the probability that that child will be released from poverty in Jesus' name is much greater than if Compassion's Project was not in that community in partnering with that church. So it was a working strategy. And today we say no to 80% of the churches that want to work with us. So we have something that's working. There's demand for it. The need is so big Um even if you had all the child organizations together, the whole sector, out of us, all of us together, that's still only reaching 27% of the wow. need. Wow. So like every one of us, us and World Vision and Food for the Hungry and all of us, all of us need to be growing because all of us together are only serving less than a third of the need. So, so in, that, in that sense, we have something that's working, there's demand for it, but it's the funding side that is not there. And I feel like God has called me to build a bridge between the church of my youth, the church in the developing world, and the church that I served for over 20 years in the Willow Creek Association, mostly in the well-resourced world, and to build a bigger bridge between the well and the under-resourced church so that we can mutually disciple each other. Because that church that doesn't have money, they're rich in other ways. And we're, we're, we have need and we have um, gifts that are different. And when we come together to serve each other, we both grow. 
Uh, it's not the wealthy serving the poor. You know, it's the wealthy and the poor serving the wealthy and the poor, just that's in right. different areas. Right, and we right. serve each other. So that's what we want to do at Compassion is build that bigger bridge. And, and for me, it really is a honing of my calling that I received at the Olympics of serving the church and thought I was doing that and was doing that at Willow Creek for more than a couple decades of serving the church. Um, but then the next nuance of that, as God often does, is he takes your calling and he, ke- he keeps focusing it even more and more over time in life. And, and really God's call was to serve the church, but to go back home to where I grew up and my mom grew up and build that bridge with that church. And I'll never forget the president of the Salvador Olympic Committee. Last thing he said after the Olympics, and I was coming back to the United States, he looked at me, he said, you know, our high potential young people, they always leave. They go to the United States, Canada, Europe, and they don't come back. And life here doesn't get any better. And then no kidding, he points, he puts his finger right in my face and he goes, don't forget about us, Mm. come back. But Mike, I got to tell you, for for many years, I think I did. I, I wanted to be successful in the United States, and I I wanted to leave that world I grew up in behind. And and it was, you know, a real growth in my journey. Um, and and something happened about well, it was about twelve years ago. Uh, in that zone, I was in a meeting and. Um, uh, we had just been reading Divided by Faith and talking about just race and reconciliation in the church. And um, and someone said in the meeting, oh, Willow Creek, you know, we're not reflecting the diversity in our community, and we need to. We don't have diversity in a congregation, on our staff, on our volunteers and vocalists. And then said, and we have no diversity on our executive team. And I'm sitting in the circle. And I remember slowly raising my hand and saying, now just making sure... I mean, you all know I'm Hispanic and that my real name is Santiago Riberto Mellado and I was born in El Salvador and, and you, you know that, right? And they all laughed and said, yeah. And then someone next to me said, oh, yeah, but you don't count. Mm. And, and two things hit me uh, immediately. One was, well, I finally made it. I finally left that world I wanted to leave and be in the United States and be successful in the United States and marry an American woman. And I got what I wanted. I'm now on the inside because I always felt on the outside, didn't feel on the inside. And now I'm on the inside. And then the second thought was, I think a little more Holy Spirit haunting in a good way. Mm. And that's not you, at least not fully you. Why are you embarrassed of where you were born and that your real name is Santiago and that your mom grew up in poverty and why do you not fully embrace all of who I've made you to be? Because I'm the one that chose you in my sovereignty to have you born in that country with that name to your dad and mom. And you growing up in all these countries isn't a liability or something to um, you know, be ashamed. It's actually something that's going to be central to your calling. And that's what it became. I'm still serving the church. Compassion is a church equipping ministry. I'm just doing it now. In, in in the church of my youth together with the church of my adulthood and bringing those together. So it's just the most, in my soul, the most congruent thing for me to be doing. You know, and your mom saw that. I heard you tell the story of when you were commissioned in as the new president 
oh, of yeah. compassion and your mom being there and she couldn't even speak to you that day. You had to follow up with her the next day. Do you mind sharing with everyone what she told you that next day when she saw you? Yeah, she, uh, Wes Stafford had just passed the baton of leadership to me and she was able to be there. She's, you know, 89 years old and she came and stood up right in front of me after the service and couldn't get a word out. Like you said, she just couldn't talk. And I was looking at her, mom, you're going to say something? <laughs> and she gives me a hug and pushes back and tears start welling up in her eyes. And she still couldn't talk, hugged me again, pulled back again, just could not talk. Finally hugs me and very quickly whispers in my ear, hablemos más tarde, which is, we'll talk later. So I came the next day and I said, hey, mom, what was going on there when, after the service when you, you couldn't talk? And she said, you know, Jimmy, when someone grows up in poverty, they never think it's going to be an asset to their children. And yet I could see that me growing up in poverty and having you involved in the life of the poor around the world, wherever we lived, imparted a certain DNA in your heart that has now become central to your calling. And I was just so grateful to see how God redeemed all of that for his good in your life. And I, I just was filled with such joy. And I wanted to share that with you. I just couldn't. <laughs> that couldn't is, that's powerful. And, you know, we use a little, another little phrase on here all the time. God never wastes our time. And he never wastes our experiences. No. No, nothing in your life was wasted. In fact, the things that you want to throw away will be the things that God uses the most. As, as we wrap today, my final question for you, and I've heard you speak so many times. Here you are, you, you I think in, in the world's eyes, everyone would go, oh, a raving success. You've done things that most people could never even dream of doing. But but I think you and I would agree on God created Jimmy Mayato for a purpose bigger than him. Yeah. The Bible says in, in Acts, David served his purpose in his generation, then he was done. What do you believe is the purpose God created for you that he knit your heart with to fulfill? for his glory, goods and bads, mistakes all along the way, as we all do. But yet the purpose you believe he created you for, what would you say? Mike, I really do believe that um, God put me on this planet to be, to be able to live in fully the kingdom of heaven come to earth movement in, in my life. That is the purpose. And honestly, I think that's the purpose for all of us. All of us have been given that purpose, the kingdom of heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, you know, for that to be lived out in each of us, that is our core purpose. And when we get that one ahead and get that one right, then the purpose of accomplishing this or accomplishing that all has context. It all flows out of the fruit of truly living in the kingdom of heaven movement eternity is in session right now i don't have to wait to experience the the full washing of the holy spirit in my life and and living that abundant fulfilled life that jesus talks about i've got living water for you uh, and living in that it's available to all of us i think that is the main reason that uh, i exist on this planet to be able to then become the person that god wants me to become and then out of that, be able to do things in his name, in his way, 
Um, and that's where I feel my particular vocational calling is to build that bigger church between the well and the under-resourced world and to help. You know, there's we've identified 184 million Jesus followers that resonate with serving the poor. Well, there's enough within the church to take right. care of these 170 million children in need, and the global need is even bigger than that. There's enough in the church to meet the need, for sure. But my particular vocational calling is building that bridge between these two, the well and the under-resourced world within the church, but only as I live it out of being the person that God wants me to become. And I think that at the end in heaven, when he says, you know, we'll have crowns and different things yep. and different rewards or whatever for life on earth, I think the, the, there are going to be different rewards than we think. We think, oh, it's going to be maybe compassion doubled in size under your leadership or this many people came to christ in your church ministry or you discipled this many people those are important there isn't there might be a place for that but i think the bigger trophies are going to be ah there's the joy trophy i remember when you were 32 years old and you discovered joy at a level you didn't know when you were going through the toughest valley in your life and you got joy and we're cheering yawn up here in heaven saying they're getting joy or peace when you understood and touched peace at a different level and there's the trophy that goes along with gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and um all those things that are the fruit of the people we're becoming in christ i think those are going to be the biggest trophies and then some of these other ones are good. Oh, and you also did some of these things too. And that's good too. What a refreshing conversation. You know, when you, when you sit down with somebody you've never met before, but I knew so much about, I've heard him so many times. I've heard him referred to so many times. I've heard other leaders speak of him. I, I, you know, I was a little bit nervous, but he put me at ease right away. And just what a delight. And I think the word's refreshing. He was just refreshing to my soul. And it's so good to know that someone with his heart and with his leadership is leading one of the greatest organizations, one of the most influential organizations in our country, Compassion. I hope you'll check out the link uh, to Compassion and check out information on how you can be a sponsor and also get involved with their just life-changing things they're doing all over the world. With our next episode, we get to sit down with a great Bible teacher, Shannon Popkin. Shannon is a new author of a new book on comparison, and we're going to be talking about the power of comparison and how comparison slips into our journeys and really holds us back and how God can use us. And I think you're going to enjoy Shannon so much. Well, once again, thanks for listening in. Now go be the leader that you were created to be in the spaces and the places that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.